We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Nehemiah chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah. If you'd turn there, please, I hope you'd follow along and pay close attention to the word of the Lord. This is a rather lengthy chapter. It's another one of the, what I've called a confession chapter. In, in Nehemiah 9, we see that, uh, a corporate kind of confession. We see the same uh, thing happening in uh, Ezra 9 and 10, and again the same kind of thing in Daniel chapter 9. But tonight, Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Danai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenane stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pedathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Good selection of that hymn there, which is exalted above all. Blessed and, blessing and praise, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just, just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey 
and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. Let me pause there just before verse 20 and uh, bring to your memory what we spoke about this morning, that Hosea was another kind of iteration of calling the people to faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant and uh, telling about how you know they had gone astray. We see the same thing here in Nehemiah, don't we? This is, uh, let me think now, 300 years later than uh, our friend Hosea was, or roughly so. So repeated themes throughout the Old Testament. Verse 20, You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Notice, my friends, at the end of verse 26 there that uh, the people several times are not mindful, they hardened their hearts or hardened their necks, stiffened their necks against God. And this often happens in the face of the blessings of God. People do that, not realizing from whence those blessings flow. Verse 27, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest... They again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that they might, I'm sorry, that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. Yet they would not listen. 
Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. So they're reviewing 300 years more or less of history. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The next chapter is going to open with a whole bunch of names of those who sealed that covenant. And then a description of what exactly that covenant was that they made before God. So... Glad at least for some people to come before God and say, we've done wrong, we're going to make it right. We're going to do what we can now moving forward. And may God do that in your life as well if you have gone astray. May God bless the reading of his word and also Jansen as he comes to share the word. Uh, give us a good dose there, brother. We need some vitamin B, that is Bible. <laughs> Good evening. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are four principles or commands that Paul gives in this section that we'll be looking at this evening and the Sunday evenings ahead, Lord willing. Four principles we see in chapters, or excuse me, chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, and we'll only look at the first of those this evening in our time together, but I trust that it will be an encouragement and thought-provoking as we look at that. Let me read those verses to you, and then we'll have another prayer and then look into the word more. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord, 
Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on, a, on anyone hastily, nor share in, the other, in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake in your frequent infirmities. Verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Before we look into God's word further this evening, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we look into your word that you might teach us by your spirit. Lord, any part in us that is unconformed to your word, Lord, help us to lay that before you, confess that, and seek to be more like your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would obey these principles, Lord, that we would heed them, Lord, that uh, you would build your church as a result of our desire to walk in obedience to you. Lord, uh, we know that you have promised to do that, and we ask that you would do that in our little assembly, even here in uh, Ann Arbor, we ask in Christ's name, amen. As we think about the whole of 1 Timothy and the purpose for which it is being written, we know and we have deduced that Timothy is dealing with problematic church leadership in Ephesus. The false teachers of the church were creating much disunity in the church. We know that from chapter 1. They were propagating valueless teachings on myths and genealogies. They misused the law promoted asceticism, blasphemed the gospel, made shipwreck their faith while leading others to go astray as well. Their conduct and teaching was anything but modeling good leadership. And here Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul's left him to deal with these problematic church leaders. And one of Timothy's main responsibilities for staying in Ephesus was to correct this issue along with teaching and admonishing the church. But it wasn't easy. He was there stepping in to correct these problems in the church through teaching sound doctrine and modeling good leadership. But what is good leadership? Well, good leadership is defined by the qualifications required of pastors that we uh, looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 as well as the qualifications for deacons. And in summary, according to those qualifications, good leaderships, good leadership looked like this. It was elders of a church that were characterized by godly conduct, the ability to lead, and giftedness in teaching. You could kind of summarize 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 by those three main headings. And put your shoes in the church in your put your shoes in their feet that is, the believers in the church in Ephesus. Put your feet in their shoes, I should say. Think about it for a moment. You're, you're sitting in a church under the leadership of those who were anything but Christ-like. Would that not cause you to doubt the confidence or have a lack of confidence in the leadership therein? 
Certainly, I would be doubtful of, of their abilities and capabilities. And so in order to restore confidence in the church leadership, it involved the church identifying those who led well and honoring them for their diligent work. At the same time, it required the church to be attentive to those elders who were sinning and then properly deal with the situation. And, and that's really what Paul is addressing here in verses 17 to 25, how the church is to treat the elders. On one end, honoring those who rule well and also disciplining those who were in sin. More briefly stated, we could say the truth that Paul is teaching in verses 17 to 25 is this, that the church was to properly honor and discipline its elders. It had a responsibility to the elders to do these things according to God's word. Paul has already paved the way to establishing good leadership in the church based on what he's written in 1 Timothy 3, but the instructions here in verses 17 to 25 would further his efforts to cultivate confidence in honor toward the elders, as well as disciplining those who were sinning. And so as we look at verses 17 to 25 in the next week or two, we see Paul laying out four main principles, four main principles or imperatives, commands, that pertain to honoring and disciplining elders. And as I, as I said a moment ago, we'll just look at the first of these four this evening, but I'm going to list all four of them out as kind of a roadmap to this section of the letter. First, we see Paul teaches that diligence deserves respect and compensation. Second, Paul teaches that accusations against elders demand two or three witnesses. Third, if the accusation is proven true and the elder continues sinning, his unrepentance demands public rebuke. And fourthly, the appointment of elders requires patience. The appointment of elders requires patience. And in verses 17 through 18 this morning, or this evening as we look at it, Paul teaches us that in regard to elders, diligence deserves respect and compensation. Look with me at verses 17 and 18 this evening. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Paul's teaching here that when pastors, elders, synonymous terms here, rule well, they deserve double honor. They deserve double honor. As we think about it, to quote-unquote rule well, as Paul puts it, implies that pastors have a position of leadership in the church. They are to rule the church, to oversee the church, and that requires them to exercise authority. Look with me at, for just a moment at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We have this idea of ruling uh, stated here, as Paul writes to the, the uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says uh, in verse 12 of chapter 5, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. We'll talk about this idea of labor in just a moment in uh, 1 Timothy 5. And he says, 
uh, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The idea of over you means that they are exercising authority over the church, the affairs of the church, the people of the church. Verse 13, and, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And so 1 Thessalonians 5.12 teaches us that the pastors are to have leadership over the church. They are to exercise authority. That is a God-given responsibility that they have. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 17 also uh, teaches us that uh, the elders of the church are to, to rule and to have authority. First, or excuse me, Hebrews 13, 17. Paul, or the author here, simply puts it, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out, speaking of elders, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So it's clear that when Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that uh, those who rule uh, well are to be counted worthy of double honor, that he has an understanding and is implying in this that there is a, an authority that the pastor has to lead the church. And those who do it well, Paul says, are to be counted worthy of double honor. Of course, as Hebrews chapter or Hebrews thirteen seventeen says and alludes to, as overseers of God's church, pastors have a responsibility to do their job well because, well, they will give an account for their souls, the souls of those in their church. And so pastors have this responsibility to do their job well because they're accountable to God. And when a pastor does an especially good job at this, he is to receive double honor from the church. That's what Paul tells us here in verse 17. And in stating this, Paul is placing then a responsibility on the church to be involved in the pastor's ministry. Notice that? Let me ask you then this question. Do you know all that your pastor does during the week? What ministries is he doing throughout the week? What is he uh, how is he using his time in the ministry? Of course, for most of you, you may not care to know all those details. You know, you have your job, and he has his job, and we kind of just live our lives. You may think that way, at least. But let me encourage you with this thought. You, you ought to care enough to notice the level of diligence and labor he puts into his ministry, at the very least. You have to acknowledge that and, and to take careful notice of that. You may not care to know, you know every detail, and he may not care to share every detail with you if it's a private matter. But you have to know and, and to be uh, involved enough to understand and to be able to recognize the level of diligence that he is demonstrating in his work. Why? Well, Paul tells us why, because... The elders, he says, who rule well are to be counted worthy of double honor. Pastors cannot self-evaluate their work to determine whether they are worthy of double honor. That is not their purview. The command is directed 
to the church membership. They are the ones to be, who are to be actively involved in evaluating their elders or elder, depending on the size of their church and how many pastors they have, to know whether or not one of them or all of them are deserving of double honor. It is their responsibility then to determine uh, whether or not he is ruling well. Those who rule well are to be counted worthy, Paul says. Counting means to be considered suitable or deserving of something, and in this, in this case, deserving of respect and compensation. However, kind of calling you back to the questions I just asked a moment ago, the only way to make a valid evaluation is to be involved in the ministry. You have to be attending the church meetings in order to hear the pastor preach and teach. And that doesn't happen just on Sunday morning. That happens, of course, on a Sunday evening, a Wednesday evening, a Saturday morning even, men's prayer, and also on other occasions as well. Perhaps one of these times you could show up at American House. Not only would that be a blessing to pastor, but it would also be another opportunity for you to sit under his teaching and to evaluate the work and the ministry and the labor that he is putting in. How do you know if he is ruling well if you are not involved in the ministry or in your pastor's life? Well, you simply cannot know, and therefore you may be uh, lacking or forsaking, I should say, your responsibility to demonstrate double honor because you just don't know. Or, perhaps in cases, a pastor may unduly be given double honor because, well, the church just simply doesn't know. They think, oh, he's doing a great job, and, and perhaps he's doing an okay job, but their lacking understanding of his ministry and their lack of involvement causes them to, uh, to act uh, contrary to what he is deserving of. Now, you're probably asking yourself this question, what does double honor mean? You know, we understand our responsibility to, to, uh, to count someone, an elder, worthy of double honor by evaluating his work, but what does it mean? How do we demonstrate double honor as a church toward our pastor? I admit the idea of double honor can cause some confusion, especially if you don't, you know, understand the term and, and what it means. One reason being that the word honor includes both an attitude of respect and financial res, uh, support. And there are two reasons we know that Paul has more than the attitude of respect in mind. For one, uh, Paul has just finished talking about honoring widows. And if you remember our study on that, honoring widows did not include just having an attitude of respect toward them. That is certainly the case, but it also included repaying them or supporting them, depending on who you were. If it was the children, remember what it says uh, in verse 4 of chapter 5? He says, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. Well, that, that obviously has uh, the idea of a monetary support for the widow not just having an attitude of respect. 
The church also, we noted in our study of widows, caring for widows, also may have that responsibility, if that widow is alone, to meet her needs, financial needs, other needs that she may have. And so given the surrounding context, we know that honor includes more than just an attitude of respect in regard to elders here. It also includes financial compensation. But there's a second reason we know this as well. Uh, Look with me at verse 18. We'll look at it more in a moment. But Paul writes here in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, as you look at this, verse 18 obviously speaks of not muzzling an ox uh, and allowing it uh, to, you know, implying here that he's allowed to Uh, eat of the fruit of his work there's a monetary idea here as well or you know uh, an ability to partake in the fruit of the labor we'll look at that more in just a moment but double honor does not mean pastors who rule well are to receive two times their support and you know often we may kind of think that you think double honor you all you automatically think of of you know multiplication here well you know, he, they must be speaking that we have to support them doubly the amount. But that's not the case. What the idea here is that they are to receive ample, generous respect and compensation beyond the, if I can say, normal expected level. You know, what is normal? Well, I guess that all depends on the church, the size of the church, and the, you know, the, the responsibilities the pastor has. But the idea is that, you know, if if think about it in this way, if there's multiple pastors and there's one that is demonstrating through his labor that he is he is all in in the ministry, well then he is to be honored above the rest by giving uh, by being given more respect and more compensation. In other words, we could say there are some pastors who are deserving of a higher level of respect and compensation because they have proven themselves to rule well. Paul further clarifies uh, in 17, at the end of verse 17, which elders deserve a higher level of respect and compensation. Look with me at the end of verse 17. He says, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. The CSB translation puts it this way. It says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, some have looked at this passage and say, oh, well, Paul's uh, distinguishing between two groups of elders. There's the elders who are the teaching elders and the non-teaching elders, and the teaching elders are deserving of double honor because, well, they have a, you know, a more responsibility or harder work. But Paul is not distinguishing between teaching elders and non-teaching elders because if you have your thinking caps on and you remember back to chapter 3, verse 2, what is one of the qualifications for elders? That they are able to what? Teach, right? And so all elders are to be able to teach. Now, obviously some may teach more than others, depending on their responsibilities, but all of them need to be able to teach and exercise that gift Uh, at least somewhat regularly. So Paul is not distinguishing between teaching elders and non-teaching elders and saying that, well, the teaching ones deserve more honor. 
that if that were to be the case, you know, that would be an unbiblical uh, interpretation, I believe, because of what we see in 1 Timothy 3.2. Rather than the clarification uh, is focused on what it, and I believe what, what Paul is saying here is that he is clarifying what it means to rule well. He is saying those who rule well are namely those, or especially or particularly those who labor in the word and doctrine. And so he's not clarifying between two groups of elders, but he's clarifying what it means to rule well. Those who rule well are those who are laboring in the word and doctrine or working hard at preaching and teaching. The pastor then who exerts himself spiritually, physically, and emotionally and works hard at his ministry of teaching, leading and guarding the church from heresy is the one who is deserving of double honor. And notice, I think, as we look at this, that the focus is not on uh, the focus is not on the amount of work, but the labor behind the work, the diligence put into it. Certainly, you know, he needs to be you know uh, effective in his work and efficient. But I think the focus here is not on the amount of work, but the labor behind it. The, the spiritual uh, uh, exertion and the physical exertion and emotional work that he is putting into his, his ministry. Now, before we go any farther, we have to note that Scripture teaches that all pastors are deserving of some level of respect and compensation. You know, never is it the case that, you know, that a pastor should be, uh, you know, undeserving of respect or some kind of compensation for his work. And we know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 11. If you look there just for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look with, uh, back at verse 3, actually, better part to, better uh, portion to start at. It says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And then he asks uh, this kind of re- these kind of rhetorical questions. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, you know, no one pays to go to war. No, they're compensated for their for their efforts and for their uh, for their work, for their labor. Uh, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, whether you know eating the fruit itself or you know selling the fruit and eating the fruit of that, you know, the the reward of that. Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of, of the flock? And the answer to all of these questions is, well, everyone does. Or, ever, you know, no one, uh, in the first case, you know, no one pays to go to war. And the others uh, do uh, drink or eat of, of the fruit of their harvest. And so Paul's using this as an argument to say that, well, even the ministers of the gospel are able and should be, uh, have the right to be compensated Look with me at uh, verse 8. It says, Do I say these things as a mere man? 
Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Aha. Uh-huh. similar ver- or The same verse quoted in 1 Timothy 5. End of verse 8. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Paul is making here the case that you know they they uh, they have all every right to be compensated for their work. Although Paul chooses of his own volition to not partake in that on occasions because he doesn't want it to be a reason for them to accuse him of any wrongdoing or ill motive. But the point stands that even uh, that all pastors, all those who labor in the ministry, are worthy of compensation. And looking back at 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 25.4, where he says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then he also, he also quotes from the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus says this, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And he, he uses these two, these two passages as means of justifying his statement in verse 17. The Deuteronomy passage prohibits owners from muzzling their ox while treading out the grain. Because this would then allow, or if they were to muzzle it, it would not allow the ox to enjoy the fruit of his labor as he, as he treaded out that grain. And the owner was not to prohibit the ox from doing that. He was to be kind and generous. Paul also alludes to the teachings of Jesus, wherein the Lord taught that the minister of the gospel is to get his living by the gospel. Look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus sends out the twelve, and he says, uh, he says here in verse 6, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And then verse 9, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. So don't take any, uh, any, uh, you know, any monetary... Uh, you know, any, any money with, with them. Rather, verse 10, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. Why? Well, for a worker is worthy of his food. So what Jesus is teaching his apostles is that they are to go out without, you know, uh, without these things because they will be provided for, because the worker is worthy of his food. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, Luke, tap, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house 
to house. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that as they go out, if there is a house that receives them, stay in it, if they're kind towards you, and eat of their food. Enjoy their gifts because they are deserving of it because of the ministry and the labor that they are putting in. Now, as kind of a side note, maybe to your interest, um, you know, some wonder if, G- or if Paul is directly quoting Jesus, or that is direct, or excuse me, directly quoting Luke, but we don't know the exact timing of Luke's writing. So it's likely that there, is a, you know, there were the sayings of Jesus that were circulated, that the disciples of Christ knew, the followers of Jesus knew, and, and Paul is picking up on one of those say- sayings, which was later then, uh, inscripturated, put into scripture by Luke, and therefore we see it also in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The same imagery, though, about the labor being worthy of his food is seen uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, when Paul writes to Timothy again. He says uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. In other words, from these passages, we learn that it is part of God's design that Christian workers be paid for their work. Some, however, are deserving of double honor. All are deserving of some, but according to verses 17 and 18 of 1 Timothy 5, there are certain ones who are deserving of extra or additional honor. Let me, before we close this evening, though, lay out the rest of the passage briefly. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. And so Paul here is transitioning from the focus being upon honoring elders who are, who are exerting themselves in the ministry, working and laboring hard in teaching and preaching, to now focusing upon elders who are lacking in good leadership. And we see this in verses 19 through the rest of, of the chapter. To just reiterate those three last points, in addition to the one we looked at this evening, in regard to elders and treating them well, or how to treat elders, we learn first in verses 17 and 18 that diligence deserves respect in compensation. In verse 19, we will look at the fact that accusations demand two or three witnesses. In verses 20 and 21, we learn that unrepentance demands public rebuke. And then in verses 22 and the rest of the chapter, we learn that appointment to eldership requires patience on the part of those who are appointing. So let's close in a word of prayer this evening, and as we do, let me just remind you that as a church, uh, we are all responsible to be a part of our pastor's ministry. We must understand their laboring in order that we not neglect uh, the command that we are given in this passage by Paul. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go that you would bless our fellowship. Lord, may we be those, Lord, who are involved in our pastor's ministry. Lord, not merely for the sake of this command, but also because, Lord, as uh, in connection to what your word says in Hebrews 13, 
Lord, uh, by being a part of his ministry and be, being willing participants in that ministry, Lord, it makes it uh, more of a joy both for him and ourselves. Lord, as we grow together toward Christ-likeness, help us to do that. Lord, help us to follow you this week. Lord, we thank you for your blessings and for our time together today. May your people go in peace, we pray this evening. In Christ's name, amen.